Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. This week, the Season team and I are excited to bring you conversations with two trailblazers in the food world. They both have the distinction of being firsts. Coming up this hour, Rachel Sayet, a member of the Mohegan Nation and an Indigenous educator, talks with Chef Sherry Pocknett. In June, Sherry became the first Indigenous woman to win a James Beard Award. And later in the show, seasoned producer Catrice Claudio talks with Ileana Masonette. Ileana is the author of the book Diasporican. She's the first Puerto Rican woman to win a James Beard Award. On the one hand, being the first of something is kind of cool. It's exciting. But it's also like, really? It's 2023. Historically, people of color have been grossly underrepresented in the James Beard universe. But that's changing. In 2020, the James Beard Foundation hired consultants to audit their practices around racial equity. We're seeing some of the fruits of that effort. If you follow this kind of stuff like I do, you noticed that this year's James Beard Awards, which took place from June 3rd to the 5th in Chicago, looked very different than in years past. Of the 75 finalists for Restaurant and Chef Awards, more than half were immigrants or children of immigrants. That made for lots of tearful acceptance speeches and family stories at the podium. The James Beard Media Awards. Now, these are specifically for cookbooks and journalists and other content creators. These are given out ahead of the Chef Awards. Ileana Masonette is a trained chef, but she won her beard for her cookbook, Diasporican. You'll hear from Ileana coming up. But first, we asked Rachel Sayet, an indigenous educator from the Mohegan tribe, to help us get to know Chef Sherry Pocknett. Hi, everyone. Natasawis Rachel Sayet, Natasawis Akidusu, a Mahuganuk. Hello, greetings. My name is Rachel Sayet. My Mohegan name is Akidusu. I'm from the Mohegan Nation. Natasha Weiss, Nepal's Upashaw, Sunflower, Chef Sherry Parknet. I'm from the uh, Mashpee Wampanoag Nation, located all the way east, Mashpee, Massachusetts, Cape Cod, and delighted to be here. Sherry won her James Beard Award in the Best Chef Northeast category for her restaurant, Sly Fox Den 2, and that's T-O-O. It's in Charlestown, Rhode Island. You'll hear about some of her signature menu items in a moment. If this conversation sounds like two friends talking and catching up, that's because it is. Rachel starts by describing how she and Sherry met and how Sherry's cooking at the powwows made her stand out. Just a note that this conversation happened in June, shortly after the James Beard Awards, so it was still strawberry season. The friends talk about Sherry's food and then get to that James Beard moment. Sherry and I have known each other a long time. Sherry, I've been a fan of your cooking since before I met you. I don't even know how long at the powwows. I know you've been a vendor since you were a kid, or at least helping out since you were 12. Yeah. And... 
I remember when I was younger, before I met you formally, I was a fan, especially of the more interesting foods that you had, like the frog's legs, the quail. I love that <laughs> stuff because I was always a weird kid. <laughs> that doesn't make you weird. That just makes you knowledgeable about, you know, Eastern Woodland foods, coastal foods, foods that I grew up on in the 60s. That was a long time ago, you know. So we did a lot of foraging for our food back then. I'm from Mashpee where, of course, the East Coast, we're seasonal people and where we eat by the season. I call it the bounty of the season. So the food, of course, goes by the season. And my mom and dad taught us how to forage. And my mom, of course, taught me how to cook and identify plants and animals when I was very young. And I love cooking. As early as I can remember, I loved cooking. I wanted to cook. I always wanted to help. I tell this story all the time that I got the Susie homemaker when I was about seven or eight. And I took everything that was in the refrigerator that my father probably harvested or caught or hunted or fished. It could have been eels. It could have been scallops. It could have been deer meat or muskrat or whatever was in that refrigerator. I took it and cooked it in that easy bake oven and fed it to my brothers. And they ate every drop. So I knew then that, you know, I was good. <laughs> I was a good cook then. At least I thought I was. Yeah, we have that in common. <laughs> I also used to make things in the Easy Bake Oven. I don't know if you've seen these days. I guess they have those kids competitive shows where the, I saw they made duck confit in one of those. So you are you were ahead of the time. Now we have kids, kids doing that competitions in the Easy Oh, wow. Which is so funny. So yeah, we, we formally met about 10 years ago when I was I was trying to do some research on some indigenous foods. And I had always been eating some of them, but never, you know, I wasn't raised foraging. And I didn't know too much at that point. And then Sherry, you brought me back into the back of the kitchen at the powwow and said, here's this and this and we had a blast. <laughs> but growing up, eating powwow food and going in the woods and picking sassafras, going berry picking blueberries and just eating the berries as are is the best really part of that because you're teaching your children, you know, what life is about and how to survive and knowing that these berries are there for you. And if you don't pick them, they'll go dormant. So you got to keep picking them. You got to, you got to keep harvesting berries and nuts and whatever else is out there. Sassafras, the more sassafras you pick, the more it grows. And it's always exciting to see what's coming back. It's always a lot to teach. And that's the part that I love. What do you love about teaching? Why is that so important to you? Honestly, the reason why I love to teach is, especially kids, I love to teach kids because they're like sponges and they suck everything up and then you're going to get your next best chef from teaching kids. But you're teaching children not only how to cook, you're teaching them how to live by the season. What's next in line, the bounty of the season, that we have to take care of the land in order to keep harvesting. And that's really important and that's the message that I'm trying to give. We are trying to convince people if you try to grow a little something, you're going to be so appreciative if it grows. And if it don't grow, you're going to try again. 
Sherry taught me so much. Thank you. Now I try to revitalize amongst my people the different seasonal holidays and the different things. And they had the Strawberry Thanksgiving Festival last week. A lot of our tribes are bringing those back. And the strawberry is such a prominent focus for so many of us. And Sherry makes a drink and it's just so delicious. And I didn't know if you wanted to talk a little bit about your feelings towards the strawberry itself and the medicine of that. I know that season is kind of past, but. Lots of strawberries this year, but we have lots of Thanksgivings, not just the third week in November. I mean, we, we have that Heron Thanksgiving and strawberry Thanksgiving is next. Strawberries are the first berry that comes to us in our new year and we share it. And it's medicine, it's loaded with vitamin C. They're a very important berry because they give us nutrition. They give us love. If you notice, if you cut the strawberries, they're they're in the shape of a heart. And a lot of different tribes have different stories about the strawberry and they use it for different medicine or different purposes. Or we always try to share strawberries. It's a giving time. No, it's beautiful. We say, yeah, in Mohegans with Tahamunch and the same definition, I think throughout New England is Heartberry and beyond Iroquois, all different tribes, right? We all have this love of the strawberry and the excitement that I think about back before, you know, colonization, right? Like, so back then, right, we had no fresh fruit in the winter too. It's like, you're so excited for that strawberry because that's that first fruit. So the medicine. Yeah is so high in that fruit but the black raspberries too and like you say like you cook with the seasons and that's really the importance of not only right your powwow vending your catering that you've done for so long many of these people don't even know that you do so <laughs> many different things you had a food truck you had this you had that and your restaurant that's what makes it so unique the seasonality the indigenous foods right what are some of your your favorite things? Like I was thinking about the sassafras martini that you serve, for instance, as something that was just such well, a... Let me tell you, the elders were very upset about that because that is a medicine plant. And that, that was just one of my creations, the sassafras martini. And to mix it with spirits, they said it's not good. So I took some heat for that one. But the sassafras martini, boy, it's a good one. My favorite is striped bass. Striped bass is in too. They follow the heron. And to cook with striped bass, to make ceviche with striped bass, to make fish cakes with striped bass is amazing. You can freeze it, you can salt it. And I love fishing for stripers. We go fishing all the time. And I think that's my favorite season. Besides cranberry picking, I love cranberries. Cranberry is my favorite. Oh my God, that ceviche sounds amazing. That one I'm going to have to try, the sea bass ceviche. Oh I have to God. get you to make it. <laughs> yeah. Do we want to talk about fry bread at all? Your feelings towards it? I don't I don't even like talking about fry bread because I got to tell the story about how those Indians were starving. A Navajo woman told me who taught me how to make fry bread. And the story of fry bread is they were removing... Native people, indigenous people off of their homelands and throwing them on reservations and they were starving. They were not able to hunt or get their food that they normally have. And they ended up having to get government commodities. That's how they, you know, they threw some flour to them. They threw some lard and they had to make something out of it. So that's what they ended up making. They ended up making that fried bread 
it's good. Of course, we all love it, but it's definitely not indigenous food. Exactly. That's why I wanted you to touch on it a little bit. There's a lot of controversy these days, different chefs, right? They Some of them won't do it at all, but a lot of people want to eat it still. So Sherry tries to make us happy and makes a butternut squash one that's also a specialty. I like doing the corn cakes. The corn cakes are my specialty. I do a corn cake with cranberries in it. It has cranberries and whole kernel corn and scallions. And we serve it at the restaurant and we offer it as a toast. And people love it. And we put chutney. We make a cranberry strawberry chutney. And people just love it. It's something different. It's something nutritional. And it's it's really good, you know, and it's better than white bread. <laughs> the salmon, I was wondering if you wanted to talk at all about the method of the cooking the smoked salmon that you do. We have a friend that smokes all the salmon and he smokes all the fish and he's amazing. He supplies so much salmon that it's ridiculous. That's also what makes your food so unique, right? You're not just seasonal, but you're also getting a lot of stuff from local, indigenous, forage. And do you want to talk about that a little bit, what that means to you? and To be able to support my local farmer, it doesn't matter if they're indigenous or white or black or poor or rich. It just matters that they have a garden and that they, they create their own stuff. We also get maple syrup from Pequot, from Mashantucket. And that maple syrup is the best maple syrup in all the land (laughs) because they have their own sugar shack. Jeremy Whipple is amazing. He's been doing it since he's been a little boy. He teaches all his tribe. We use their maple syrup at the restaurant. I've been wanting to try their syrup. I need to do that. He is, he is amazing. You can get it right at the Pequot gas station. That's awesome. Yeah. So we yeah. talked a little bit about some few different foods. Now, in terms of the plans for your restaurants, what are your plans? You have one location in Charleston, Rhode Island, and Sly Fox Den 2. And then you have another building in Preston, Connecticut. Has That's really the real been- deal. That's the mothership. I'll tell you. 2018, I, I used to work at the museum at Pequot, at Mashantucket. I left there just to venture out on my own. I was doing cr- catering like crazy. And I needed a place to cater out of. And I live in Preston, Connecticut. And right down the street, there was this biker bar. And it went out of business. It was beautiful, right on the water. It's beautiful, old brick. There's a river and the bay. And it's three and a half acres, 200 seat restaurant, a really beautiful old building. It needs a lot of work. But I said, if that becomes available, I really would try hard to get it. The next week it became available. I don't know how I got it. I borrowed money from everybody I know. And I did it. I got it. So we're busting our butt, trying to get it ready to open for spring of 2020. And what comes? Pandemic. The world shut down. No more business. So I'm holding on to this restaurant by the skin of my teeth. Believe me. So I had to create some type of revenue. And I was at a baby shower out in Narragansett. 
I ran across this little cute building, had a little sign on it that said for rent. I said, this is cute. And I'm sure no one was knocking down the door to open a restaurant at that time. I called the landlord and we came to an agreement and I ended up with a restaurant (laughs) during the midst of the pandemic. And now this is our third summer. We made it. We made quite a little name for ourselves. And somehow I got nominated for the James Beard Award. And when someone called me and told me that I got nominated, I was flabbergasted. I was like, how do they even know about me? I was in shock. I'm still in shock. Honestly, that was the award itself. I was happy. I, I didn't plan on winning anything. And lo and behold, June 5th, I go to Chicago. I wasn't even going. My daughter said, we're going to go. We ended up going and I was trying to figure out what I was going to wear for this black tie affair. And I was told it's like the Oscars of food. The highest honor would be to wear my full traditional native regalia. And that's what I wore. I didn't think that I was going to get it. I just knew that I wanted to go there and show who I was and be proud of being nominated and be proud of who I was and how far I got. And when they called my name, my whole body, my whole being shook. I was literally trembling and barely made it up there. I didn't write a speech because I didn't think I was going to win. Didn't even think about winning, but I won. And I'm the best chef in the Northeast and I'm proud. Yeah, we all knew that you were the best chef. Wow. It's such a blessing for, you know, not only you, your tribe, and I saw some of the welcomings, right, with the dancing and different things that are happening, but for all of us here in, in native New England, all of us folks Thanks. in the history here, people not even knowing half the time that we're here, and Sherry, being this amazing chef, has made a huge impact on not only the, the culinary field, but awareness. You know, and I didn't even realize they said, oh, you're... She's the first indigenous chef to win the James Beard Award. I was just thinking I was not indigenous chef, but just a chef. You know what I mean? I didn't see it like that, but I see it like that now. And I'm proud. I'm very, very proud. And I'm humble. And I'm very appreciative. I have so much gratitude to Creator and my family, my friends, my supporters, I've got so much support, love from everybody. And going through cancer, while all of this is happening, I was really, really sick. I got diagnosed with cancer last year in October. I had to go through chemotherapy. I got really, really sick. And so I couldn't really work anymore. So my daughter took the restaurant over and Cheyenne is doing all the catering, most of the catering. And so it works out. They're amazing. They really are. Yeah, it's so great that they took an interest and that they've been passing on the recipes and keeping them going. And, you know, even when you're not able to cook, because I've had their cooking too, and it is great. We're just also proud. And I cried. We all cried. Like a whole, all of the Indian country that knew you. I know everyone said that. Somebody put a post on Facebook. I don't think the whole town of Mashby has a dry tear. Everybody's crying in Mashby. And that was just, you know, makes me emotional. It makes me emotional 
But all the more, I'm just grateful. I'm just grateful and I'm happy and trying to get through this cancer stuff for the end of it. And I'm doing okay. I'm feeling good today. And I got a little ways to go and hopefully I'll get through it. And I know I'll get through it. I'm too stubborn not to. (laughs) Well, Sherry, thank you so much for sharing all of that wonderful wisdom today. Congratulations again on your award. We really appreciate it. How about me? Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it, Rachel. You know, we go way back. So appreciate you very much. Thank you again, Sherry. And congratulations again. Thank you. That was Chef Sherry Pocknett. She's the first Indigenous woman to win a James Beard Award. And she did it cooking the food of her heritage at her restaurant, Sly Fox Den 2 in Charlestown, Rhode Island. You can learn more about Sherry and find out how to support her in getting that original restaurant up and running in Preston, Connecticut, by visiting her website. It's slyfoxdenrestaurant.com. Sherry mentioned farmer Jeremy Whipple. He's the director of Mashantucket Pequot's Oak Farm, where they make what Sherry called the best maple syrup in all the land. My colleague Patrick Scahill featured the farm in a series about BIPOC farmers. I'll link to it on our show page, ctpublic.org seasoned. You'll find a photo of Sherry there, too, accepting her James Beard Award in Mashpee Wampanoag traditional dress. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Coming up after the break, author Eliana Masonette on her travels in Puerto Rico and the major cultural influences that make up Puerto Rican cuisine. If you look at our food, like if you look at pasteles, all three of these traditions and these peoples combine together. And without the three, we don't have that. This is Seasoned. We'll be right back. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Our next guest also made culinary history, even before this year's big awards. Eliana Masonette is the first Puerto Rican woman to win a James Beard Award. She's also the first Puerto Rican food columnist for a major newspaper in the United States, the San Francisco Chronicle. 
Her newsletter is on Substack, and her first book is Diasporican, a Puerto Rican cookbook. She joined season producer Catrice Claudio via Zoom to talk about the book from her home in California. Congratulations on your book's success for earning the James Beard Award this year for your emerging voice. Thank you for creating a book that we can find ourselves in. And us, I mean diasporicans. And you were confronted with many, many rejections and saying that there was no space for this book, that there was no market, no one was trying to check for it. And I want to uplift that I and 5 million others stateside are that market. So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You say this book is for diasporicans. Can you please describe what that means to you? Exactly who are you talking about? Well, you know, diasporicans are what they call any Puerto Rican that doesn't live on the island. It doesn't even matter if you were uh, born and raised there. As long as you are disconnected from the island and living stateside or anywhere else like Hawaii, you are considered a diasporican. Your book not only celebrates the beauty of our food, but it also releases us from the superstitions and traditions of Puerto Rican cooking. Like, you don't have to frito your sofrito, right? Fry it up first. You don't have to soak your beans. You even admit to the ceremonious frying of sofrito when you're cooking in front of other Puerto Ricans. As someone who understands the need to uphold the rituals, I am always going to clean my chicken first because it's been drilled in me, but I seldom... Mm -hmm make sofrito from scratch. That is my cardinal sin, right? Are there any rituals that you hold on to, like, for the comfort or for the culture of it all? Well, you know, I, I, if I'm cooking for other people who I know are, you know, dead set on, like, washing their meat and putting sofrito in, you know, frying it in the oil in the beginning, like, I'll do all those things, you know, but <laughs> I'll still end up, if I do add sofrito in the beginning... It's mostly for the other person, and then I still add some towards the end. And obviously, it's made a difference because, you know, so many people have noticed the flavors towards the end, too. And I tell them every time, like, that's because I add it towards the end. What was the process of unlearning traditional ways? Like, was it easy for you, or did you just kind of say, you know what, this is not working, so I'm going to do what works? I mean, you're not unlearning them because they're still embedded in you and you still know how to do them and sometimes I still do them Mm -hmm. it's just that most people who cook the food of their culture you know Puerto Ricans who cook Puerto Rican food that's just uh food you know it's their birthright so every Puerto Rican is doing it not necessarily the way that other Puerto Ricans do it they're doing it the way that their parents their grandparents taught them how to do it so even when we're talking about Puerto Rican food not all Puerto Rican people make Puerto Rican food the same way which is what mostly causes a lot of the heated discussions Mm -hmm. and disagreements and arguments well my grandma didn't do this well turns out plot twist your grandma wasn't even that great of a cook so (laughs) there it is but in addition to that though I think a lot of my looking from the outside in comes from just going to culinary school. Mm. So we're there, they teach you nothing but very Eurocentric techniques. Everything is French. So you might get lucky and get a class that focuses on quote unquote Mediterranean cuisine, you know, but for the most part, everything is French. Mm -hmm. So there are techniques that I will take from there because I personally think that they might amplify Puerto Rican cuisine, like the flavors or make my cooking easier or more efficient or Mm. quicker and then apply them to Puerto Rican food. And that's the difference. Love that. And it actually echoes 
in my next question, which is that Puerto Rican culture and Puerto Rican cuisine in general, you had stated that it's very regional specific, that we often prepare things based off of what's accessible to us. You found regional specific delicacies out of Luiza and Humacao and my own understanding, like I have a personal relationship with Puerto Rican cuisine, but you expanded my own understanding of like Puerto Rican cuisine beyond pork and beef and occasionally shrimp. You actually found preparations of rice and alcapurias, which is like a fried pasteles or a tamale like fritter with crab, which is like unlike anything I've seen before. And so what was it like discovering those hidden gems in Puerto Rican food that you may not find stateside? Well, I mean, finding a caburia with crab is actually very common if you go to Luisa or Piñones mm-hmm. or finding lots of empanadillas or pastelitos with crab. Like, that's very common because that's where most, that region cooks a lot with the land crab, which uh, when they capture them when they're in season and then put them in some type of carrier and then they flush out their system and feed them coconut and corn to make the meat more sweet but so that's an easy find but Mm -hmm. finding things like the rice fritters or the granitos in humacao is Mm -hmm. a lot different because you would actually have to go to humacao or the surrounding areas because of course you know people move through Mm -hmm. generations and they kind of will like you know leak out into like different um surrounding towns or municipalities or the barrios as they call them because you're not finding that in San Juan, period. No. That's not going to happen. And <laughs> no. that's where pretty much a lot of the people who come, it's always like the same. Like, I had a wonderful three days in San Juan. And as soon as oh, you say that, I already know you're on a, you're on a cruise. <laughs> Boom. But if, you actually if you're on a cruise, land. you have a very limited amount of time and even distance that you can explore in that short period of time. And I think because that is such a common experience of Puerto Rico for people in America, there is this limited understanding of how much you can just veer out and actually explore the island. What was that right. like for you? During your travels there, were those your first times visiting the island into your adulthood? Were you assisted by guides? Did you go visit family, getting this deep personal connection? Like, how did you end up uncovering these things? It was the first time that I had gone as an adult by myself, which is very different than going as a kid. Because mm-hmm. you're at the mercy of your parents, which means they're in, they go... And they don't have a car, which means you're at the mercy of whoever is driving you around. As an adult, Mm -hmm. the more I went, the more comfortable I got. The more it became like a piece of home. It's never going to be my home because I'm not from there. Right. But it becomes a piece of home. You get more comfortable. The more comfortable you become, the more, you know, you feel that you can explore. So when I first went, it was kind of like all these things on my checklist that I wanted and needed to do. Cause we were researching for a little cookbooklet that I created in 2014. So we were like, okay, I want to go here. I want to meet this person. And then the next year you go and you're like, okay, now it's like half work, half play. So <laughs> now it's gotten to the point where I just run a car and I drive. Ooh. So we're getting super familiar. <laughs> right. So I just get in the car. Like last time I was there, I took a couple of my friends and my mom, because my mom goes everywhere with me, of course. Because in California, we do day trips mm-hmm. where I'll put her in a car and we'll just go to like different farms and orchards. And that's essentially what I did. I just replicated the road, day road trip in Puerto Rico. I just got in the Jeep. Those towns just kind of like spill into each other. So we just went from Vega Baja, Manatee to Arecibo, Barceloneta. 
that's fire. So it was just straight exploration. And that's that's got to be exciting. So you are a writer. And I read in the book that you wanted to write like a writer but cook like a chef, which I thought was super interesting because that actually influenced your decision to go to culinary school. How did culinary school impact that process of not only learning your cuisine and creating and developing recipes, but applying proper techniques when necessary? What I'm doing now, I had absolutely no idea what was going to happen when I was in culinary school. I enrolled in 2009. I had not mm-hmm. cooked any Puerto Rican food at all, period. And my mom doesn't really cook a lot of Puerto Rican food either. Like My grandma was the one that cooked all the Puerto Rican food. So I actually already knew how to make Laos food when I was in culinary <laughs> school because that was my first kind of introduction to cooking is when I went to go live with my best friend who was Laos. I cooked that food way before I even cooked my own culture's food. And so did that help you get confident about exploring your culture's food? No. <laughs> Me being in culinary school, yeah. first of all, culinary school was a piece of cake. Like I was like, mm-hmm. this is super easy. This is, the curriculum is easy. Being here, the discipline. But two years into it, I'm like, there's so much other exciting foods happening outside of these walls and outside of this regiment. And outside of the French culinary traditions, and and if we're going to talk about culinary traditions, I would love to discuss where Puerto Rican culinary traditions came from. What are the major culinary influences behind Puerto Rican cuisine? Well, it's obvious that it comes from Puerto Ricans' culture, period. So mm-hmm. most people, not everybody... Most Puerto Ricans are a mixture of, you know, our indigenous inhabitants, which are the Taino. Now they're saying that they weren't even called the Taino, but whatever, just for the sake of, you know, what we know Common, now, let's yeah. just go ahead and call them the Taino, which are, you know, the, and they came from like South America, pretty much. Mm. So there's a lot of similarities between South American cooking and indigenous cooking. And then the enslaved Africans that were brought by the Spanish. But also, there were other European people that came too. Like, there were a lot of French, there were a lot of Dutch. But ultimately, the majority came from Spain. What was the significance of including that indigenous acknowledgement? Is it, what was important about acknowledging that contribution to Puerto Rican cooking? A lot of people in Puerto Rico, a lot of Puerto Ricanos, mm-hmm. no. They will tell you straight up. When you ask Puerto Ricans what they are, they will tell you, we're Puerto Rican. And if you want to, like, you know, really poke at it, they're always going to add all three. Mm-hmm. Taino, Spanish, and African. Mm-hmm. Period. I personally feel that a lot of Puerto Ricans feel there's a lot of indigenous erasure. But if you look at our food, like if you look at pasteles, which is like, you know, one of the most laborious and probably one of the oldest Puerto Rican recipes, it's made out of, not everybody makes the masa the same, of course, but the masa is mostly made out of plantains and yautia. Yautia, yuca, nyame, all of those tubers are indigenous. The inside is made from like a stewed pork, which is Spanish. And then the platanos come from Africa. And then it's steamed, which is a very indigenous method of cooking. When we talk about frying, frying is what's introduced to Puerto Rico from the Africans, from the enslaved Africans. That's a very African method of cooking. But steaming and barbecue are straight up indigenous. 
Okay. So when you're looking at a pastel, it's literally all three of these traditions and these peoples combined together. And without the three, we don't have that. You're listening to seasoned producer Catrice Claudio's conversation with Ileana Masonette. She's the author of Diasporican, a Puerto Rican cookbook. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Coming up after the break, the allure of pernil and the dying art of lechon. That's whole roasting a pig over fire. With pernil, it's simple. You have to cook it at a slow temperature for a long time because that's how it achieves that very specific crispy skin. It's the same type of skin that you would get when you roast lechon. You're listening to Seasoned on Connecticut Public Radio. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. In our previous segment, seasoned producer Catrice Claudio talked with Ileana Masonette about the Taino, Spanish, and African cultural elements that make up Puerto Rican cuisine. Those are the influences Ileana draws from for the recipes in her cookbook, Diasporican. They'll talk about some of those recipes coming up. We pick up the conversation with Catrice asking Ileana to talk more about the complexities of being diasporican, a person of Puerto Rican heritage who doesn't live on the island. You created this understanding of what it felt like to be a diasporican by saying that we derive from this tribe of ni de aquí, ni de allá. That means not from here, not from there. I'm a diasporican and I'm fine with that because mm-hmm. the issue is as soon as you leave the island, you become a part of the diaspora. And right now we're 5.8 million of us stateside. There's only 3.2 million on the island. And that's not by accident. It's that connection or that displacement sometimes that further fuels our drive to preserve the food ways, uphold the traditions. It's like, well, if we're not speaking the language, we're going to know when to drink coquito and how to make it. We're going to know what goes in my arroz con habichuela or gandules. It's this territorialism or this ownership of saying, well, I'm going to participate where I can. And I am so curious because as much as you acknowledge that we're all diasporicans and that we all in some way are connected to each other, whether we acknowledge each other or not, you also say that it's not a Puerto Rican cookbook. And there's like a whole irony behind that. Could you elaborate more into why it's not a Puerto Rican cookbook? Well, because I'm the one doing the cooking and I'm a diasporican. So there's always going to be ways in there. It gives me... A buffer, it gives me the grace to do things my way. Ah. <laughs> because I'm already I'm already making sofrito in the only way that I can, but it's already different from Puerto Rico because I cannot access aji dulces, which traditionally goes into sofrito. a sofrito. Mm-hmm. I have just barely begun, maybe in the last five, seven years, been able to find one place where I can access recao, which is culantro. Mm. In in Cali, so, wow, yeah, in California, and th- and that's because it's at a Southeast Asian market that um, serves the Southeast Asian community because a lot of Vietnamese people use it in their pho. Mm, okay, 
Well, so I'm already making the diaspora reconversion of sofrito, which a lot of people already do, and it's been done for so long that now even people in Puerto Rico are using or adding bell peppers to their sofrito. But that wasn't always traditional. Sure wasn't. And and speaking of those recipes, right? So the carne guisada recipe was the first recipe I have ever made from a cookbook ever. And the reason why that recipe specifically was chosen is because, one, it was the first recipe I read where every ingredient on the recipe was in my house already. But also, mm-hmm. <laughs> but also that I knew how to make carne guisada my way. But you also make it my way. And it felt familiar and it felt identifiable, right? But you jazz up a lot of the classics like guanimes. You jazz up your recipes for even pasteles stew. When was it important to incorporate tried and true classics like that carne guisada that you created? And when was it exciting or important to just create alternative experiences of those tried and true classics? For me, there are a lot of tried and true classes in there. Like the arroz con gandulas is my grandma's recipe. Mm-hmm. The bacalaitos are my grandma's recipe. The pasteles are my family's recipe. So there are more tried and true recipes in there than there are, you know, California Puerto Rican recipes. The only reason why I did Wainima is that way. Mm-hmm. I just decided to add Dungeness because I have more access to Dungeness than I do bacalao. It's harder for me to find bacalao than it is Dungeness crab. What I appreciate is understanding how you experience your culture in a place where even that accessibility to the culture is limited. That bacalito connection that you talked about where you said that your mother or your grandmother was making bacalitos like her mother before her and they hadn't spoken in years. Um, But they were very similar because they both didn't add sazon. They didn't add the baking powder. They were both this good color. And it was this disconnection while being completely connected at the same time. In my opinion, it felt like it was the overarching, echoing sentiment throughout the book. It's this, we are so detached from our our roots and our culture because, again, people are hoarding histories. They're hoarding recipes, hoarding secrets, which I don't even know if that's a Puerto Rican thing or just like a familial thing. But either way, it has the same impact. Was writing this book a way of bridging the disconnects between the generations, even for yourself in some like unique spiritual way? Or was this the release of these recipes need to go out here? It's not like the book just happened overnight. You know what I'm saying? Like I've been working on the book since really 2014. The book is like a culmination of so many parts of my life, just from starting the book in 2014 when my grandma was still alive from having the column with the San Francisco Chronicle, a lot of the stuff in the column is in the book. Back at the time, I was focusing a lot more on Puerto Rico rather than the diaspora itself. Mm-hmm. And then my life, my experiences and other recipes. It's really not that deep. I just wanted to write a cookbook that was for us, for diaspora Ricans, because that had never been done before. Mm-hmm. I wanted to write a book that centered itself around diaspora Ricans, which I had never done before. And I mm-hmm. wanted to write a book that came from somebody who's, from a diaspora Rican voice because mm-hmm. a Puerto Rican cookbook had not ever been written by somebody who's not from or living in Puerto Rico. There's beauty in both things. I think me taking it as a diaspora Rican, receiving the book, it became a gift, right? Like it once you release something into the world, it turns into its own thing, unfortunately. So if I'm over romanticizing, my bad, but you you hit a chord with us and I want to value that and I want to make sure that you 
hear exactly how impactful and special that was for people like us. So with Puerto Rican cuisine as it stands right now, you mentioned that it's not a cuisine you rush. You absolutely have to take your time with it. You need to be attentive. Um, Well, Puerto Rican people aren't a people that you rush, so. (laughs) And so there is this Puerto Rican restaurant here in Connecticut, Criollissimo in New Britain, that has a line out the door at lunchtime and regularly sells out of its brand If you do it right, it may take a day or two to make it. It's worth it. Can you talk more about the allure of the pernil and why, or the pork shoulder, and why there are just some PR dishes that you just can't rush? I mean, with pernil, it's simple. If you don't cook it for a long time, it's going to be tough. So that's just standard cooking rules apply there. And it also depends on which type of pernil you're using. Like, you can use the one that's bone, that doesn't have a lot of bone. You can Mm. use the one that the what they call the picnic shoulder that has a bone going through it that has the skin all around it, which is sometimes, you know, harder to find um, depending on where you are. But that's the one that I think a lot of Puerto Ricans prefer. And when you're talking about that, you have to cook it at a slow temperature for a long time because that's how it achieves that very specific crispy skin that I haven't really seen a lot of. It's the same type of skin. It's very thin. It, like kind of shatters like glass is like crackle. Mm-hmm. It's the same type of skin that you would get on um, a lechon, like when you roast lechon. Mm-hmm. And the only people that I have seen that roast lechon, like Puerto Ricans, are the Filipinos who and, are also conquered by Spain. Oh, God, because I was going to ask about that, too, because what I also didn't know was its ties to Southeast Asian culture and how some of those techniques mirror the pit, you know, roasting that happens in Hawaii, Guam, the Philippines. How impactful has that Southeast Asian influence been on Puerto Rican culture? And is there, could you elaborate more on how that relationship happened? I'm not necessarily sure. Like, I don't really know too much about Filipino cuisine. The only thing that I've been able to connect through the lechon, because I had to do so much research mm-hmm. for, I mean, I knew how to cook a lechon by memory my mom and i together mm-hmm. memorized how my grandma taught us we had absolutely nothing written down at all mm-hmm. i had to do a lot of uh written historical research like i'm like okay because i need to know how to write this down you know like i could not personally find anyone <sighs> i looked through so many barbecue books mm-hmm. whole hog books so much and not a single one of them except for i think maybe one which was a book called La Gran Cocina, I think, which is written by a Cuban woman. Mm-hmm. And she doesn't have any photos in there, though. She just kind of has a written method. It was the only book out of so many barbecue books that mentioned how to roast a pig like that. And I even tried to look at videos. Like, I tried to look at, like, Puerto Rican lechon videos, and there's just, there was none. The only thing I could find on videos were people roasting the hog on a spit in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. I watched so many videos on how they roast pigs in the PI in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. The seasonings are different, but the method is exactly the same. I know in Connecticut as well, it is nearly impossible to find lechon unless you know a Puerto Rican with a backyard that's going to make it. And either you used to go to the bodegas in the city of Hartford to get it, or you would, again, go to a family's house. So. I wonder if that's a, do you think that's a dying method that people are just not interested in, in doing the whole pit roasting thing anymore? <laughs> a lot of people still do, but now they do it in the Cajachina. The Cajachina is a Cuban invention. 
it's it's a box on wheels. Mm-hmm. It has the great. It basically replicates the pit method, but mm. it's a box on wheels, and it, it costs a couple of hundred bucks. And they just put the pig in there, you know. And it's an easy way to do it. It's a convenient way to do it, you know, because it's it's a mobile thing. You can kind of put it in your truck and like take you wherever you're gonna be, you know. But as far as people roasting a pig on a spit, yes, I do think it's a dying. It's a dying method. Yes. There's still people that do it on the island, obviously, because you have the whole town of Guavate that's known as a Ruta de la Chon. So there's plenty of people that are doing it there. Of course, all men. It's a very type of, you know, you know how Puerto Rico is. It's a very mm-hmm. type of machismo. gender role, machismo, mm-hmm. Holy Week, shutting down, Catholic, <laughs> traditional type of place, you know? Mm-hmm. As far as like diasporicans too, definitely like a lost art. <sighs> So disappointing because my mom was the only person or the most recent person in my family who's had lechon. I've never experienced it. So I'm thankful that you even have recipes accessing it. This was an amazing conversation. It was an absolute privilege. Thank you for your time. And I wish you the most success. And I hope that whatever comes is just as successful and just as important and just as enlightening as it has been with Diasporican. Thanks for having me. That was Ileana Masonet talking with Catrice Claudio. Ileana is a trained chef, a food writer, and now a James Beard award-winning cookbook author. Her book is Diasporican, and we've got three recipe excerpts on our site. There is a fried rice recipe that nods to the impact Chinese immigrants have had in Puerto Rico, and the other recipes are classics— Ileana's tostones include a tip that make them, quote, truly magical, and she's sharing her nana's pernil as well. It takes two days to make, and it's worth the time and effort. Go to ctpublic.org seasoned, or you'll also find the recipes on ctpublic.org recipes. I'm Robin Doyon Aiken. Seasoned is produced by me and Katie Tolersky, Meg Dalton, Catrice Claudio, Stephanie Stender, Tegan Engel, Meg Fitzgerald, Sabrina Herrera. Our interns are Stacy Addo and Carol Chen. To keep up with the latest on Seasoned, follow at CT Public on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. And we're at WNPR on X, formerly known as Twitter. Catch this and past episodes of Seasoned wherever you get your podcasts. And subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you like the show, do us a favor and rate it on Apple Podcasts. It helps other food lovers find us. Thanks for listening, everybody. 